everyone. Welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters with your questers Josh and Dan. That guy over there is Josh. And that guy over there is Dan. And on today's podcast, we will be discussing all things quizzical because we're going to have an email palooza for you. We expect to, this kind of, kind of run long tonight. So if you have any questions for us about anything at all, please drop us a line at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we have some long-winded ones, which is just fine for me. I get to talk a little bit over here. Uh, let's start with something short. Uh, hey, Josh, Dan, thank you for the excellent content. Is there anything that the community can do to support the two of you with material for the show? Perhaps if each episode topic was posted to Discord, Reddit, or Facebook channels to get people to discuss the topic as a community and create traffic between media sources. Beyond that, I would love to know if we should anticipate any new airship books or adventures coming soon. With two core book disciplines being oriented towards airships, I hope to see more airborne content. Kindly, Michael. Thank you, Michael. I'll address the second part of that first. We don't have any current plans for airship slash riverboat rules. My issue with the airship rules as they have existed in the past is that they tend to take focus away from the player characters and not really give the group as a whole enough to do. Fair. To borrow the Shadowrun term, it's not quite the Decker problem. Yeah. But when you have a group that has a Sky Raider or an Air Sailor, and you're getting into a scene or situation with an airship and you want to have airship versus airship combat or some other kind of situation like that, there's not a lot for the non-sailor characters to do unless and until the airships get close enough for there to be a boarding action. We've been focusing on other stuff and not really thinking about the best way to address that. I have some really, really vague, not particularly formed thoughts about a possible way to approach it, but... No, there's nothing really currently in line. One of the Legends of Barsave adventures does briefly involve an airship. Hmm. It's the one where you go over into the war zone and deal with the false men. You take an airship over there. But that doesn't really have the airship featuring significantly in any kind of capacity the way that, say, Terror in the Skies does. Yeah, fair. With regards to the first part of that, we are more than happy to entertain suggestions for topics to cover. Yeah. Emails can be helpful in that regard. We have at this point covered a lot of the larger topics. And I don't know, maybe there is some th- value in mentioning, hey, this is a topic that is going to be coming up that we're going to be recording in a couple of weeks. If people have thoughts or questions or whatever, either post them in this thread or send us an email or whatever. I think actually it might not be a bad idea to mention it now. We are working on an episode coming up here in a couple of weeks where we're going to be talking about the subject of 
player character death and different ways to approach that or handle that and various Mm -hmm. options and whatnot that you can have. So if you have thoughts or ideas or stories that you want to share along those lines, send us an email, edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Or I will try and remember to post uh, probably in the official Earth Dawn group on Facebook, Mm -hmm. because that seems to be a good place to get that kind of thing. Or maybe as a subject in the FASA Discord, maybe I'll I'll post a open up a thread in there uh, to talk about that. So that is a, a, a possible idea. I don't want to say that we're necessarily starting to run out of subjects, <laughs> Fair. but a lot of the more obvious low-hanging fruit has kind of been grabbed, and outside of questions, we're not really revisiting it much at all. Yeah. Um, but we've got setting books that we can still explore. We've got this player character death topic, other sort of more general advice ideas that pertain not just to Earthdawn, but... RPGs in general, but, yeah. you know, approaching them from a specific Earthdawn point of view. So that's where that is. Yeah, we're just mining a little deeper, getting what we can out of it. All right, on to Jennifer. Jennifer, I honestly think, except for people who've only written in with their initials, this is our first female email. Just, I certainly can't think of anything off the top of my head. Going to hazard a guess. Jennifer, you get a thousand legend points just for emailing us. Be the first. And it took a hundred and some odd episodes to get there. Hi, guys. Thank you for the podcast. I was listening to episode 48, and Dan mentioned that he had built a spreadsheet for knacks and their associated disciplines. Would you be so kind as to send that to me or post it somewhere where I can download it? Thank you for your time and the great info, Jen, GM extraordinaire. Thank you, Jen. I have the spreadsheet, but it's basically I built off of Josh's spreadsheet, so he's actually got the whole the thing somewhere i think all i ever did was add on the ones from the uh the questers maybe no no i added on the i added on the circles higher and above from the companion for the knacks and things like that you're talking about the fourth edition stuff yeah okay i don't actually have a spreadsheet that i'm aware of for the knacks oh i have a spreadsheet that shows what circle slash tier the various talents are for each of the core 15 disciplines from the player's guide. Yeah. That's I had, the one that I've got. I don't have anything put together for Nax. No, I don't think I have anything put together for Nax either. Maybe I misspoke or she misheard. I'm not entirely sure, but um, in my spare time with my free money, I'll see what I can do to build one. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think I have anything for Nax. I may have misspoken. Sorry, Jen. Sorry. That would be a great resource. Absolutely. Um, so like, it- And as a matter of fact, when it becomes available, I suspect that kind of information will be part of the FASA slash Earthdawn wiki when that <laughs> finally goes live, hopefully a little bit later this year. We don't have a specific date. Things have been slow in that regard, but we're hoping that uh, it is able to at least get sort of its early release thing online fair. at some point. Fair, 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 fair. Uh, so in my spare time, I'll see what I can do to work on that one because I need a, uh, need another project like a hole in the head. Next from Jonathan. Hey guys, just listen to your episode on the third and fourth circle shaman spells, which spawned from me two simple questions. Number one, does animal companion count as allies to benefit from the fifth circle ritual regarding pack and binding spells? 
I would say no, because there's some other stuff that's in play there, and I don't remember off the top of my head exactly what it is, but that, for example, an animal companion is in a sense not able to give consent for things, you know, in in the same way that there is certainly while they are valuable and they are intelligent in their own way, I don't think that is the intent. There's nothing that immediately comes to mind, but it feels like there are one or two cases where animal companions are excluded from being in part of something like that. And so I would say probably not. Fair enough. Question two, how would you handle repel animal cast in front of a charging cavalryman? That's just it. Thank you guys for the show. Jonathan. So repel animal, while similar to life circle of one, has one pretty notable difference. And that is that repel animal does not cause damage to the animal. It just directs them gently aside. That's the actual text from the spell. And so you could put it up in front of a charging cavalryman mount or a charging animal of any sort. And if successful, I would say that all it would do is deflect the animal away from the path that it is on rather than halting them hard or perhaps the thought here being, oh, if I can get the animal to stop, then there's a chance that the rider might fall off. But it's pretty clear from the lack of damage that it causes, unlike Life Circle of One, which does cause damage to undead or other entities that try to cross it, that the intention of repel animal is to just keep animals out of an area, not to harm or injure them in any way. So I would just have it redirect the charge of the animal. It would certainly be a potential way to protect yourself from getting skewered by a charging cavalryman, but I don't know that I would have it do any kind of offensive effect otherwise, whether stopping the animal hard or dismounting the rider or anything along those lines. Fair. Uh, hello, good sirs. This is from Francois. Another question I have in mind, since and since I might try to start a game for my kids, it might help me. I always figured the cares were magically sealed during the scourge, but as we have seen with the Earth Dawn and other references, people were getting out to try to open other cares. How did they do that? Let's suppose I have a new game with a closed care. People are just coming and knocking? Could they open the doors for five minutes? I am now on to episode 46. You talked in 45 about naming spirits. Okay, let's, let's, let's handle the first one first. Sorry, there's a couple of questions okay. on this one. So, generally speaking, cares were magically sealed during the scourge or otherwise closed in some pretty significant way. You know, large, heavy stone door, typically with magical wards and protections on it to prevent it from being broken into or breached from the outside, stuff along those lines. People would be able to open the care from the inside, like that's kind of the point, is that eventually when you want to emerge, you need to be able to open the door so you can get back out. And yeah, uh, I don't know, I'm. it's not in... 
any fourth edition material, but in earlier material, there was actually a wizard spell called Care Knock. Oh, yeah. Um, or Care Knocking, where yep. basically it was just a spell that you would cast on the door of a care, and it would interact with the wards and magical protections to indicate that somebody was at the door and, you know, looking to communicate. And then there was another spell that I don't recall off the top of my head that would allow, again, I think it was a wizard spell, to right on the outside of the door and hmm. the message would appear on the inside yeah. so that there could be some communication. So there were methods that were developed to allow people to communicate in that way. Yeah. I don't recall off the top of my head whether either of those spells is going to make an appearance in Deeper, Deeper Secrets. Secrets. They exist in prior editions, first edition. Guaranteed. For, yeah, definitely first edition probably appeared in some variation in later books. Mm -hmm. Classic almost certainly has it in there. Yeah. I just don't remember the specifics. So it being something that exists within the setting is perfectly fine. I just don't know exactly what the mechanics or circle were off the top of my oh, head. It was very high circles, like eighth and it was it was very high circle. I, remember I don't know that it was there. very high. I think it was like a journeyman tier yeah. spell. Care knocking is a, had four threads, and care pictographs was the other spell that I was yeah because of the way they're listed here. I don't know what circle they are. Oh, of course not. According to the Earthdawn Three Players Guide, so this is the third edition book. Yeah, care knocking was a fourth circle wizard spell, and care pictographs, which is the one that allows you to communicate through. The Wards of yeah. a Care is a fifth circle spell. So not super high. No, much lower. They much would be accessible to, you know, most skilled folks. Yeah, according to third edition, they've got like four threads each. Yeah. But they are spells that exist within the setting, and I would have no problem at all with them continuing to exist. We just don't have specific fourth edition mechanics for them. Fair. I They were a lot lower circle than I recall. So Josh's research is better than my brain today so and more often than not okay back to francois i am now in episode 46 you talked in episode 45 about naming spirits to gain power over the spirit how could that work half magic in fact my question is where can i find the most rules on such naming is there also any kind of information on pattern items for say thrall or thera or far less important places there really aren't any rules as far as mechanics go for naming spirits in that way, half magic would seem to me to be a good place to have your character maybe, if they are of a discipline that would have relevant knowledge about that, to know the process for naming. I think it's something that is better served without hard mechanics in it. I think there may very well be a ritual that is something that I would tend to have be a kind of story beat or an arc of some sort where if you are going to be building a relationship with a spirit where you want to name a spirit that you are going to be working with, that that is something that for most summoners you would want to build that relationship over time. So you'd be looking at a situation not too much unlike 
bonding with an animal to make it an animal companion or something along those lines. You want to have its attitude towards you be largely positive so that it is willing to undergo such a thing because a spirit would know that being named like that does give the namer a certain amount of control over them. But they also know that it will make them more powerful and more difficult to control by other people. So that's something that I would definitely keep in mind with regards to that. Yeah. I am not crazy about the idea. In fact, in any game that I was running, I would not allow a summoner to just call up a spirit and name it, like to force a name upon a spirit like that. I don't think it would take. Fair. It doesn't strike me as something that that should be easy to do. But I also don't think that there necessarily needs to be a mechanic or a test that the character would need to make in order to successfully do that task. With regards to pattern items of Thrall, Thera, or other places, there really aren't any details of what they are. The whole idea of pattern items is to largely, although not exclusively, act as a kind of MacGuffin or story hook, Mm -hmm. where it is uh, something mainly that people will be very interested in getting a hold of because of the potential power that it gives you over or in a particular location. For significant places like Thrall or Thera, there are probably researchers and magicians that have done research and figured out what the likely pattern items are Mm -hmm. and probably have those under a certain amount of protection. Certainly, if such an item were to fall into the hands of a player character for them to take advantage of that, there would be a lot of people very interested in taking it from them for their own ends or retrieving it so that that weakness to the location is no longer a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Plot hook, story idea, mild spoilers for early first for first edition adventures, the dragon statue that shows up in Infected mm-hmm. and crops up once or twice in other adventures is a pattern item for Icewing. It does not in and of itself really have anything in those adventures that the player characters can take advantage of with it. In fact, it's fairly well established in the aftermath of at least one of those adventures that even if they like when they show up with it, somebody shows up offering to buy it. And if they decline to sell, then it gets stolen. Mm -hmm. You are not going to hang on to this. The person that it belongs to is far too powerful and has far too powerful servants to let this have player characters (laughs) stop them from getting it if they really want to. Yeah. But again, that's, Plot hooks, MacGuffins, story seeds. It's like the suitcase in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. It is a thing that lots of people are interested in for various reasons. And if one comes into the life or crosses the path of player characters in some way, it is going to cause some problems. I feel quite a bit more concern and attention paid to pattern items than they necessarily deserve. Mm -hmm. They are cool. They can be great story hooks. They can be good MacGuffins. They can be a way by which strange or quote unquote 
rule breaking aspects of magic within the Earth Dawn setting can take place. Mm-hmm. With somebody's pattern item, you could do rituals or do things with that because of its connection to someone that would seriously bend, if not break, the expected understanding and laws of magic. They are neat, interesting. A lot of the concern about pattern items is player characters who are paranoid about their pattern items falling into the hands of enemies. Mm -hmm. And while I can understand that, the fear from that, at least from my point of view, derives from a more adversarial relationship with a game master where you are worried about ways that they might mess you over. Yeah. That they might take advantage of you or that is one of those things that belongs in a session zero discussion, belongs in that ongoing meta discussion about the game as to whether that is something that is on the table. Mm -hmm. Personally, for games that I run, don't necessarily have a huge amount of interest when it comes to messing around with player character pattern items. Yeah. Except when they intentionally create them for a group true pattern. And then the only folks that would be really interested in them would be serious, powerful adversaries that they continue to cause problems for rather than we kind of upset this wizard one time. So he's going to get super vengeful and try and like (laughs) take our pattern items. Yeah. This is more along the lines of we keep messing with the Denerastis plots and we have done it often enough that they know who we are and are finally going to take Take action action. against us. And that is going to be like the focus of a storyline. Yeah. But again, something that you should probably have a discussion about in terms of the limits on that for your table. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, last question from Francois. Is it indiscreet to ask what are your day jobs you sometimes refer to? Thanks. Have a nice day and keep up the good work. Francois. It is not indiscreet. I'm happy to mention that I work in the registration department for a local hospital, which mainly involves talking with patients on the phone, going over their basic info, making sure because we're in the US that we've got the correct insurance information, starting that whole process for any time when they're interacting with our part of the healthcare system so that we try and minimize the difficulties for everybody concerned further down the line. Having incorrect insurance info means that people get bills when they're not supposed to. It means that potentially surgeries get delayed. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of like rough stuff that can happen if we don't have that correct info up front. And we need to like make sure that it is always up to date. Yeah, fair enough. So that's what I do. No, that is my day job. Fair. Uh, I've I also train our new hires to do that. Yes been in this current position for about seven years now. Um, and I'm one of the senior folks in the office. And uh, and so I actually spend these days more time training new hires to do the job than actually doing the job myself, which is fine. I like training. I'm oh, good yeah. at it. Yeah. 
Same thing. Uh, this is my fourth different job I've had doing this podcast because uh, COVID laid me off like three times. <laughs> but normally speaking, I work in call centers, uh, not Josh's, but my own call centers. And I do a lot of scheduling and forecasting of call volume. So that's bare bones. All you need to know. Uh, and I currently do it for a hospital. Not the same hospital as Josh, but I currently do it for a hospital. Uh, okay, let's see here. Here we go. This one's from Jay. Johan, uh, thanks to both of you for a great show. I found you because I was looking for a group to play tabletop RPGs with. I have very little experience, but found myself in a new place with extra time on my hands. Okay, what is that like? What's that like? <laughs> <laughs> the game I found was one I had not heard of before. I had limited play experience with D&D and Pathfinder. Can we say that on the show? Haha. <laughs> but Earth Dawn was the game that I found, and I am hooked. One of us. One of us. Uh, then I went to Spotify and found you guys. I have listened to over 100 episodes and still over a year and a half behind you guys. I will catch up. Um, yeah, they go a lot faster when you just like power binge those. Yeah. Um, we just finished our fifth session and we just made second circle. I play a windling archer that goes by Q. Well, enough about me. I do have a question. In episode 99 about the messenger path, you said that it was obsidian based. And they make the bulk of the members of this group. You also said that many times that messengers are not allowed to have strong ties, but must maintain neutrality. How can they not have any strong ties when they all belong to Life Rocks and the Brotherhood that comes from that? Thanks so much. I know one day I will hear the answer to this question. Until then, grow the legend, as we say here in Austin. Two things. The messenger path mm. is kind of an outgrowth slash revision of the previous version of Messenger, which was largely Obsidimen. Yeah. There is some stuff in early Earthdawn material where Obsidimen messengers are often hired to deliver messages or small packages and so forth between population centers because they are very reliable when they take on a task like that they complete it. Windlings are often used as messengers within a city because they are quick and can go up over buildings and, and don't necessarily need to follow the street paths. Yeah. And there was, I think it was in third edition, they developed a messenger, uh, messenger discipline yes. based on the obsidian messenger that had sort of existed within the setting lore previously. That rings a bell. When we developed when mainly when Morgan developed the messenger path for fourth edition for mystic paths, there was some rework done on that to have it be a kind of organization within bar save secret society, that kind of thing. And so yes, Obsidian may still be a significant portion of that organization, but certainly not exclusively. To address the other piece of that, it is more that the messengers do not necessarily want to have strong political ties with any political power because their underlying philosophy, their underlying goal, understands that it is possible for any particular 
political entity to change allegiances, to change how they operate, to no longer be in line with the foundational ethos of the messengers as a community. While there may be times that the goals of, say, Thrall may align with the messengers or the Life Rock Rebellion or any number of other political powers or organizations where their goals and objectives fall in line with the messengers, if those no longer match, the messengers are going to give precedence to their ethos and their quest, for lack of a better term, than they are to any individual power. If something happens in Thrall that ends up having them become a more imperial, tyrannical political force, that the messengers are likely to act against those efforts because it runs counter to the foundational ethos and philosophy of the messengers as an organization. I hope that makes sense. In a roundabout way, but yeah. Yeah. The Obsidian will have strong connections to their life rocks. The Obsidian members of the messengers will have that strong connection. And that is something that may cause problems, but individual life rocks tend not to have the political influence simply because there just aren't a lot of obsidian. There aren't a lot of life rocks. There aren't enough of them to make them a force in that regard. Like the closest one is the life rock rebellion. Yeah. Which at least for right now falls in line with the overall goals of the messengers, at least as I understand them. Fair. I mean, yeah, obsidian are only one less than 1% of the population. So it's, yeah, they should be rare. Just saying. We're talking maybe a few thousand obsidian men in all of bar save. Yeah. Scattered across a, you know, a probably few hundred life rocks or something along those lines, if that many. Totally. It's like the windlings. There aren't really enough of them to be a significant bar save wide political power as opposed to Thrall, Kratos, Travar, Iopos, yeah. entities like that where there is more of a political gravity well, for lack of a better term, that shapes how things go. Fair. Okay, let's move on to one for, sorry, from Frank, 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 or Frank to the third power, as I'm going to start calling you. Hi, Josh and Dan and Dan and Josh. There are a few support talents and skills that have always had a tough time running. For the most part, I try to play rules close to how they are written, unless there we have a clear house rule. But there are a couple of categories that I really struggle with. The first category is the survival and travel stuff. Navigation, wilderness survival, hunting, fishing, etc. They are key to several disciplines and interesting character concepts, but the systems in the books for using them don't seem very fun to me. I've cudgeled together various house rules in Earth Dawn and in 1879, but have yet to come up with anything that I am in love with. Like a lot of game masters, I really don't have an interest in running an, an accounting game to keep up with how many rations and liters of water they've got, or whether they've got shelter. It sounds like most folks just hand-wave that stuff and use the abilities as knowledge skills, especially given the elementalist spells available that render most survival abilities moot. 
do you have any advice for how a name giver versus nature conflict in a way that will be fun and dramatic? Having your characters sprain their sunburned ankle and die of dysentery while they starve to death certainly is not anyone's idea of a good time. But how else are you going to convey that to the players that the Badlands are, in fact, Badlands? I don't have any strong advice on that. Those are abilities that, broadly speaking, are limited in terms of what they have. Like, if you're running a largely city and political game, they're not something that's going to come into play. But to go back to the discussions that we had about the various disciplines and how, in one sense, the disciplines that the players choose for their characters tell you what sort of game you want to play or they want to play, the kind of challenges perhaps that they want to face, that if you do end up with a group that is more wilderness survival oriented then you might just need to bite the bullet to a certain extent and deal with the bookkeeping that goes along with that sort of thing. One of the things that you can do, though, is take advantage of your players. Lean on them to keep track of that sort of thing rather than require you to have all of it. That does end up being a little bit more of an accounting game. Yeah. The other possibility is that you could perhaps, and this I don't think would necessarily work for wilderness survival, but perhaps with navigation or similar things like that, if you want to come up with some quote-unquote random encounters, that you could have the result of the navigation test or whatever it is that they're using to get from point A to point B, be the randomizer that determines what they come across in the course of their travels. And you don't necessarily need to have it be, okay, one test per day. But if you can come up with some interesting encounters, whether those are encountering wild animals or strange ruins or other odd phenomena out in the wild or an isolated village, you can perhaps use the result of those tests to have additional stuff happen to them. Having the quote unquote better results be higher up on the table in a way so that the higher results on those tests get them better things. Yeah. But it could be also that you could have wilderness survival, particularly if they are looking for shelter, be a similar situation. Yeah. If a group is going to be going into the Badlands, if a group is going to be venturing into the Poison Forest, if the group is going to be entering an area where the environment is going to be a lot more dangerous, then I think it's worthwhile to, even if only for that particular story arc or adventure, to have those challenges and obstacles be part of the story. Agreed. Yeah, it could be that the group's elementalist has spells that are going to make many of those concerns not as significant. But if that's the case, then great. Yeah, then it's solved. I I look at things like that where it's, okay, now it's time to do that kind of accounting, like bathroom scenes in movies. No one ever goes to the bathroom 
in a movie until it's part of the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> until it needs to be part of the story. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, you watch the, the spy movie True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. There's a bathroom scene in there because he specifically makes that a point to go to the bathroom and be attacked by the bad guys. He, he confines that space there. So until you need to go to the Badlands, until you need to do the accounting of the water and the food and the shelter, don't worry about it. When you need to get to that point, though, then it's time for the characters to actually do the resource management to play it accordingly. And, and I can certainly recognize the feeling that players might have of just in general, but to talk specifically about those survival abilities and whatnot, to feel like they are, quote unquote, wasting legend points yeah. on raising these things that aren't being used. And again, as part of the ongoing meta discussion about the game, mm -hmm. if they just want to have a character that is kind of like a wildernessy ranger Aragorn type, yeah. but they aren't actually interested themselves in the bookkeeping and whatever, then the amount of immersion, the degree to which you use that sort of stuff can vary from table to table or session to session or whatever. Yeah, that's fine. As long as everybody is understanding the situation and has the same kind of expectations going into it, I don't really think there's any problem with it. No, yeah. I uh, If you want to hand wave and, and ignore or downplay those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I played a character, my fourth, I played a Tuscrang scout, and we spent about two or three weeks in the Badlands, uh, traipsing all over the place. And so it was just, you know, the game master would say, okay, Mark off a couple of days worth of rations. You know, the scout made, made the scout did all the checks for foraging and hunting and shelter and whatnot. You know, you're good and move the story along. That was, so he didn't exactly hand wave it, but it was one of those. If you're out of rations, let me know. <laughs> if, you, if, if you needed to stock up ahead of time, figure that part out as well. Uh, okay, so back to the email. Second category is vehicle abilities like air sailing, pilot boat, and sailing that have mechanics that are. Hard to love. It seems like the common solution is to roll some dice and ad-lib the result, completely ignoring rules as written. However, it's hard to raise the stakes if I'm just inventing the rules on the fly. I have revised the ship combat rules. Those will be playtested in a week or so, unless the players are especially clever. Yes, I talked about those very things earlier in this very episode. <laughs> I don't have anything to add beyond what I said earlier. Fair. No worries. He's got a third category. The third category is Haggle. I'm experimenting with a couple ideas based upon the skill challenges from, I think, 4th edition D&D &D and task chains from Traveler to approach these situations involving Haggle. How have you handled them in the past? Any suggestions? Thanks, as always. Frank, Frank, Frank. Honestly, Haggle has not been something that has featured significantly in any of the longer-term games that I've run. That's one of those things that, similar to tracking money, tracking rations and days of water and various other things yeah. like that, you can dive into to greater or lesser extent. I would be fine if a group really didn't want to get into the super nitty-gritty on that to have haggle be something that you just make a simple test on in just in terms of maybe providing a bonus to 
how much you get for loot that you're trying to sell or if we're not doing a heavy role play like circle advancement thing mm-hmm. just to make a haggle check to see what kind of price they actually get for training to their next circle yeah the again that's one of those bookkeeping kind of abilities that i just generally don't have a lot of experience with because the people that i have tended to play with haven't been the kind to delve really deeply into that aspect of things sure I've only ever done uh, haggle. I used to do haggle one way, and I didn't like it a whole heck of a lot. Which was you, you get three tries, which is opening volley. They get to respond. You have your return volley, and so you get three. You know, I'll, I'll knock the price down so forth and so on in three tries, and three. You know, you get three rolls on your haggle against their social defense, and that seemed to just take forever to roll, and everybody else was kind of left out of the problem. And so then I, with fourth edition, I kind of came up with the rule of every extra success you get knocks ten percent off. And that's it. People seem to be okay with that. <laughs> that's a fairly simple one. I don't know that I would go 10%, but... Yeah, 5, 10. You basically just take an amount that you decide that you're going to get for, for each success yeah. and reduce it down to a single roll. I just figured 25, 25 above your target number is really hard to get. <laughs> so you're not going to get more than yeah. five successes. You're not going to get more than 50% off. So I mean, look, if you've got it as a talent and you're dealing with a character that's focused on charisma oh, yeah. and karma and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It's possible. What I might do with that kind of one role resolution is rather than using the social defense as the target number is if the person that you are haggling with has haggled themselves, have that be the target number yeah. that you would be rolling against because then your ability to get a good deal is hampered by the fact that they are equally adept at countering whatever kind of yeah. negotiation you may have exactly so it depends upon how quickly you want to get that done the the latter way i just mentioned that josh chimed in on uh works really quickly and then if you want to do the actual back and forth and the role-playing aspect of that which i've encouraged before um i give everybody you know three volleys you get three opportunities to knock their price down they get three retorts go with the rule of three works for me that's the only piece of advice i have for you on that at all just to how fast you want to get things done. And our lastly, we have one from the, one of the Council of Joels. <clears throat> First things, the podcast is still great. I'm not going to do a British accent because he is part of the British Council of Joels. It was wonderful to meet Josh in person at Gen Con. I'm very sad that Dan wasn't there. Dan is also very sad that Dan was not there, but that's a different story. Um, given the recent discussion of Legend Awards, I'd like to say that one of the PCs in the high-level group I get to play in has just hit 15th circle as a Beastmaster. Our legend point total is currently 1.2 million. He hasn't got many ranks in his new talents as of yet, but he has reached the top of the mountain. There are other players, the other players pondered why there isn't some title or special thing for reaching these dizzy heights. I suggested a trophy of some sort like in computer role-playing games, but apparently that is not what they meant. The character who has managed this is a single discipline with only a path woodsman and some threads to distract him from progression. And while he hasn't maxed every talent, he hasn't done this by speed leveling or ignoring his optionals completely. We are all in awe slightly both in and out of character that there was a short IC discussion reminiscing how far we'd come together. Now for the other two of us to reach it. Though it may be a while before our elementalist wizard, weaponsmith, shaman, purifier, garland, quester, human, because he has versatility as well, gets there. 
Technically, we've been playing the game for about 23 years, but most of that is a 20-ish year hiatus, so not sure it counts in full. We were just hitting Master Tears before the break and then converted to 4th edition. Enough hey look at, at us, we're awesome. What advice would you give to returning groups wanting to convert to 4th edition? We went with eyeballing where we were and worked out how many legend points we needed to look right the lower costs of multidisciplines and the lower number of ranks needed to get through the high circles meant our numbers were slightly different. Just wondering what your thoughts would be. He has questions for Lou. Thank you, Joel. We will get those to Lou when we interview Lou. So this question is taking characters in a game that you started under a previous edition and adapting them to fourth. Yeah. What I would probably do is sort of eyeball it. Mm -hmm. How about this? If you managed to keep records of your character's advancement, like what you spent your points on, yeah, then I wouldn't think that it's too difficult. There are two ways that you can go about it, I would say. One would be to eyeball it, where you look at your discipline and the talents that you had under the earlier edition, and then look at what's part of the new edition and just kind of convert over as best you can. Mm -hmm. If you were playing an, an edition where you spent karma for legend points, uh, for spent legend points for, for karma, karma there's that. I wouldn't worry about that aspect of things. I would probably just for simplicity's sake, use whatever legend numbers that you had and not worry about whether it actually maths out all correctly or not. Yeah. Because that's just an easy way to, to go about it. The other thing that you could potentially do, and this is a little bit more time intensive, but is a, but will result in a more mathematically accurate representation mm -hmm. is to more or less go when we were last playing under second edition, I was an eighth circle sword master. Yeah. I'm going to take 4th edition, and I'm essentially going to make a starting Swordmaster with the stats or whatever that I could have had at the beginning, yeah. and then advance the character through the circles and figure out how – and threads and all that various other thing – and yeah. figure out how much that totals up to. Mm -hmm. Because, again, the, the actual costs of advancing things – the actual legend point costs are the same. The parts that are maybe different is if the characters are originally made in first edition and you've got multiple disciplines, the costs yeah. on that are different than they are in later versions. Some aspects of things like that. Fair. I would tend to be, let's eyeball it, make the character kind of as close to what they were, but in the new edition. So swapping out talents where old talents weren't available or whatever, yeah. and then just using whatever the legend point totals were and not worrying about the, the specific details. Oh, actually with the way this ended up, they would not have had enough legend points to do it. Blech. Yeah. Fair. I wouldn't be that concerned <laughs> about it. If I was coming back to a game after 15 years and you know, multiple editions. <laughs> fair. I wouldn't be that concerned about it if we're actually going back to the old characters that way. No, uh, my my group actually had a they wanted a re, they wanted a refund on all the legend points that they had spent on things that were now free in fourth edition. So this is what I came up with to help answer the question. Since we spent points on durability, you get those legend points back 
since it's now just factored on your, with your circle. Any any points you spent uh, on any attribute increases above three, because uh, previous editions allowed you to do four and five increases. So anything above anything at four or five, those points came back to you as well. Any points you spent on spell matrices came back to you as well, since those are now free talents. And uh, not all of them, though. So you would want to be careful about how much fair. you rewarded, you refunded on that. Fair. We hadn't two quite, of them. You could refund. Yes, absolutely. We hadn't quite gotten above fourth circle, so I hadn't quite gotten to, to, into the weeds yet. And again, this was my beginning, beginning volley here. And then anybody who actually has ritual of the ghost master because that was a fifth circle talent. Uh, you had to spend like 800 legend points on or something like that. To get there, uh, those points came back to you as well. So that was at least a starting space for points. And then you could just, uh, to, Josh's po- to Josh's earlier stated point, uh, port over all of the talents that are consistent, rename the ones you get new in fourth edition that are better than the ones in previous editions. And so there's figure out where the points go and where the ranks are and things like that and just keep those the same. Make your make your accounting easier. And then I did have some people who really went heavy on karma, and so they wanted to refund on those. And so I said, okay, a thousand points per circle, because I'm pretty sure you could only max out at like five or 10 karma points. My memory is very vague on this one. Anyway, so they wouldn't spend more than, you know, 10 points per point of karma. So 10 times 10 is 100. So 100 points of karma, or sorry, 100 points for pool. Uh, so I said, okay, a thousand points whatever. I'll be benevolent. Uh, so a thousand points per circle that you are to replace all your karma that you spent per circle. Cause I know you spent multiple, multiple sessions per circle rebuilding your karma per day. So I knew that was going to be in there as well. So if you're second circle, 2000 points of car, 2000 legend points to replenish your karma pools. So all those points, that little, that new pool you just got could be spent on increasing here stuff. and there. Yeah. Things like that. So that was my little thing. Durability points, karma ritual points, attributes above three, spell matrices, most of them, and ritual of the ghost master as a nice starting point to just kind of call things refunded, returned legend points. Do what you want with those. Port over your talents and skills. Knock yourself out. Yeah. Something else that you could use as a way of making perhaps the accounting and the math easier is to use something like second step. Or yeah. if you have either the Roll20 or Foundry yeah. packages for Earthdawn, mm-hmm. make the character in those because I think those would track how many legend points yes. you spent. And so you could get a sense of how many legend points it would be and then just compare that to the totals that the characters have. Mm-hmm. That's a tool that could make that piece of things actually a lot easier. Oh, totally. The steps character sheet was fantastic. I don't know what happened to it. But second step is something that's still around. It's second step now for fourth edition. Ah, okay. Because the steps character sheet was out there, but I don't know if it got renamed. Yeah, it's Lars, the one who has done the did the previous versions of that. Yes. Second step is the ah. is the current one. It's the fourth edition. There is a, it's basically a, a website, a yes. web page, and you can save the character as a json file which mm-hmm. means that you can then re-upload it and change it and whatever fair he has been really good about having everything included in there including like quest stores and oh yeah it's second, been fantastic second discipline rules and all that sort of thing i got players who use it and they love it and then it was down for a while so we i need to go see if it's back up again yeah cool. second step it, it's i'm pretty sure it's called second step fair 
No worries. I couldn't find it for a while. Uh, folks, that wraps up this edition of our quizzical episode, uh, number 188. Yeah, until next time, email us your uh, how you ported over from previous editions to fourth edition for your legend. Good night, everybody. Good night.